Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 197, we are covering Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me once again is Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers, guys. Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and more. But now, for the book itself. Piranesi is told through journal entries, as the man called Piranesi explores the unfathomably huge and alien labyrinth he lives in. He is one of only two living human beings, along with the other, who is searching for a great and secret knowledge. The two of them occasionally meet and share information. The other gives Piranesi modern gifts like shoes and explains what he, that he does not forget anything, while Piranesi does. As the story goes on, however, the other begins expressing concern over the imminent arrival of another living human, whom Piranesi calls 16. Piranesi first encounters yet another person, whom he calls the Prophet, and that sets off a gradual revelation that the labyrinth of the house is an alternate world, and Piranesi was a reporter who got trapped there by the other, a man named Val Ketterly, who hopes to transcend his humanity with the great and secret knowledge. Sixteen, it is revealed, is a police officer named Sarah Raphael who is searching for Piranesi, or Matthew Rose Sorensen, as he was known on Earth. Together, they narrowly survive a flood in the house, which takes Ketterly's life, and Raphael convinces Piranesi to return to his family on Earth. He doesn't consider himself to be either Piranesi or Matthew Rose Sorensen anymore, but dedicates himself to living both on Earth and, from time to time, in the house. So this is a short book, fast read. Yeah. Um... Now, I, I have to admit, going into this, I had really high expectations. Uh, I've had so many people tell me, you know, like, this is a book for, for Drew McCaffrey. Like, this is the kind of book that I like. And they were right. <laughs> uh, I loved this book. I, I think there was a little bit of a lull in kind of the middle third. Uh, but she really stuck the landing. I think the biggest thing for me, and this this is very much the style of the book, not just the writing style, the way she uses words, but the whole tone, the mood she sets in it, is this just ethereal, ancient, unknowable echoing. And I love that feeling. It is the same feeling that the best parts of the Halo games give me. The reason why I love Halo so much, you know, the the moments in the first Halo game where you're walking through these gigantic alien buildings and, and chambers and caves and just looking around and knowing that there is a deep and rich and ancient history there, but also knowing that you're never gonna find out what that was. And that's the feeling the house gave me. Those opening chapters, I loved because of just the scene she painted and the feeling you get through Piranesi's journal entries. Okay, so explain the lull to me that you saw. So the lull was when the real world started creeping in and becoming central to the story. I thought that kind of robbed the, the book of some of that feeling that I loved so much in it. 
um, it, it made it a little too grounded for me. Um, how would you, how would you fix it though? Uh, I, I don't know if it's something I would say you fix. It's just, it wasn't, it didn't stay the same kind of story. Um, if I had written this book, I would have never brought earth into it at all. It would have been something totally different, but despite that she recaptures that feeling at the end in those final journal entries so i i thought she nailed the landing she left me with that that wonderful hollow bittersweet you know sensation that my favorite books you know have so yeah i i don't know i th this is this is a book that really is about the mood and the the way it sparks your imagination. What do you do if you don't see it in your head? If you have, what what's it called? Aphantasia? Aphantasia. Yeah. That would be rough. This would be a tough book to read if you can't picture the house. Because <laughs> it's, it's such a vivid image, a vivid setting really memorable these massive halls and vestibules and you know and then the the different levels of it with the you know the water the tides down below and then going up into the clouds it's just so cool it's so cool there's uh there's also more than a little bit of the same feeling as the book of the new sun Gives definitely me. yeah definitely but it's funny because i was through the through the early chapters i was treating it like i treat reading gene wolf me too where yeah. where i'm like this is a you know this is a puzzle for me to well to figure out I and mean, then hold on can i say something real quick okay so i know in reading gene wolf that it is we have an unreliable narrator and mm -hmm. we know from page one that Piranesi is also an unreliable narrator, but obviously not for the same reasons. Yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> like, okay, why is he lying or does he not know? And, and as it turns out, he doesn't know, but, but anyway, so what I was saying about Wolf, where you read the book of the new son as a puzzle, you know, you, he wants you to figure out the story, to draw the story out of the pages on successive reads. I was expecting this book to be that sort of thing. And then straight out a quarter of the way into the book, Susanna Clark tells us, this is not that kind of book. We have this, this quote, I realized that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled a text to be interpreted, and that if ever we discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. And reading that made me recontextualize what I had read before and made me change the way I was approaching reading the book thereafter. And, and I think in a little bit of the way, that's this is where... I started liking the story less 
Mm -hmm. um, because it became a more grounded thing rather than this nebulous, inscrutable artifact for me to puzzle out. Uh, you know, when I think back to it as a, as a written whole, it doesn't ruin the book for me by any means. I still really enjoyed this book. I gave this book five stars on Goodreads. I think it's wonderfully written. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. It just, I needed to change my mindset a little bit on how to read the book for it to fully land for me. Okay. I, I didn't have that same problem. Yeah. Uh, but as far as the, uh, the unreliable narrator thing goes that you brought up, it, it's funny because he starts off the book talking about how he has this incredible memory for all the halls and places he's visited. And then he says, uh, you know, there's the journal entry, a list of the things the other has given me. And, you know, it's a sleeping bag, a pillow, two blankets, two fishing nets, blah, 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 a torch. I have never used this and cannot now remember where I put it. And I'm like, you know, this is a <laughs> Severian-esque. The character just got finished telling us how great his memory is for all these places he's explored. And then here he says straight out, I don't know what happened to that. I don't remember where I put it. Like, and so I, I had highlighted that thinking, okay, this is our first, you know, clue. This is the first thing that I need to latch on to the way I do with things in the book of the new sun. And then it ended up being a bit of a clue in terms of, you know, where the story is going, but it's not the same sort of puzzle, the same sort of clue that, you know, we're, we're in the book of the new sun. The answers are there from the start here. This is a clue that the answers are coming and we don't, we cannot know. Uh, whereas in the book of the new sun, you theoretically could, I mean, it would take a tremendously close and analytical reading of that book to, to get it the first try, uh, from those early pages, but the answers are in there in the early pages. They're not here. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I think he describes his favorite statue in the first like page or so and he talks about it's the woman with the beehive yeah, yeah. and the bees crawling all over her and the one on her eye and the and one he's on like, her Ugh. eye yeah <laughs> and he's like i love this statue and he he starts talking about it i'm like how do you know what a beehive is how do you know what yeah. that this is a bee when you say like this is my this is my home i am one of the only yeah and i loved that aspect of it that there's this feeling of ancient history like at least the impression I had from the get-go is that this is Earth in the unfathomably far future. That's and, what you had thought. And yeah, and that he is one of only a few remaining living human beings. And and so knowledge has been passed down, but the context for it is lost. I, I never thought about it that way. I was like, mm, okay. you clearly knew these concepts and these things. And yet you are telling me, like you have the experience of what a mother is, and yet you are telling me that you don't have one. Yeah. And I know that you're lying. You're not talking, you're not thinking like sadly when you look at the statue of this mother about losing your mother. 
you just say like, there never was one. Yeah. And, and so for me, like that, that read as a clue of, you know, like this is a different sort of humanity. This is a different sort of world. And to me, it was like, he has experience in the real world and somehow he is here and has forgotten. So you read it as a portal fantasy from the get-go. Yes. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I I think I would have liked this book much less had I read it as a portal fantasy from the start. I mean, I guess I wasn't thinking the typical portal fantasy where you know where you are and you know where the portal is or you know that the portal happened because he clearly didn't know. I don't know if that's typical. Like it's it's either accidental or purposeful, but there's there's generally like intent, and clearly there wasn't here. Okay. Um. So the other thing that uh, this book reminded me of, in terms of you know when we're talking about metatextual conversation, uh, you know this book reflecting and 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 kind of talking with the book of the new sun in some ways um it also reminds me a great deal of paralandra by c.s lewis this is the second book in his space trilogy uh much less well known than narnia uh i think probably a good deal better than narnia um definitely allegorical uh, you know, like Lewis enjoyed writing. Um, but the second book is called Paralandra. Immediately, the title is even evocative uh, in the same way. It begins with a P. It's a, a single foreign word that doesn't immediately, you know, give you knowledge about what the story is about. Um and in the plot of Paralandra, the main character is on Venus. And in, in this fantasy, uh, Venus is, is covered in oceans and there are these kind of like floating islands that some sometimes move around and hook up with each other and connect. And he is alone navigating these islands with the devil. Huh. And the other, as the book went on and the other started gaining more sinister attributes, it really struck me the same way as uh, the character interacting with... With Ketterly? Uh, well, well, in Paralandra. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so uh, there, there was one line in particular... Um, oh, actually, I highlighted the wrong line. I, I remember it first coming into my head when he was uh, he was talking with Ketterly and uh, about like how he doesn't want to pursue the knowledge anymore. Mm-hmm. And Ketterly, you know, tells him this is why we should. You you keep bringing this back to me uh, in regular intervals. Here are the reasons why it was in that scene. uh, I don't remember exactly which line now I thought I highlighted it, but apparently I didn't um, that it, it 
struck me the similarities between this and Paralandra, between uh, the interactions of Ketterly and Piranesi and the characters in C.S. Lewis's book. So, and, and honestly, it, it's been a long time since I've thought about the space trilogy. And, and now I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, we'll have to cover it on inking out loud at some point. I know Pat would love to come on for those. He's so, read them. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it, so moving into more of the, uh, the typical style of conversations that we have, this is an epistolary book. This is a book written in journal entries. Uh, we've done a few books like this uh, over the course of this podcast, probably most notably the black company. Um, but you should read the, the title entry for, for one of them. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, be talking about that a little later on, but <laughs> uh, you know, so like the page I'm on right now, the entry is strange emotions. Uh, and the next one is I leave. Um, no, read the rest of it under under oh, the like entry for the first day of the tenth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, so this is one of the things I was going to kind of compare and contrast with the Black Company. We don't get these neat journalistic separations in the same way in the Black Company. They are separated into chapters. Mm. Um, we don't, and the chapters don't have names. They don't have epigraphs. It's just. Chapter one, I think in the first book, that's the only one that has real. Oh, actually, no, as I'm talking, I'm realizing I'm, I'm, it's all over the place throughout the Black Company. The first book has chapter titles. Um, some of the books don't, some of them, the chapter titles are just where they take place. Um, some of the books have, uh, like I know Soldiers Live has both a location and a chapter title. Um, hmm, yeah, interesting, but they don't have epigraphs. They don't have the same really intimate personal feel because the, the journaling in the black company isn't the personal journal of a, of a character. It is the records of the black company that this character is keeping. Uh, and I think it gives you access to different types of storytelling. This story really is an intimate character study, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't have a name for him initially until yeah. the names him Piranesi. And he immediately says, that's not my real name. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, fine, whatever. Call me what you want. But he's also not interested in the other's name. Yeah. Like he clearly isn't, bothering him when we see them together mm -hmm. he doesn't really care about names yeah uh and and that's another one of the ways that this story feels alien from the get-go is the the sorts of priorities you and i would have in a situation are not the priorities that piranesi has yeah clearly i mean i could see at some point if it was my goal going into explore and categorize i would i would do what piranesi does but he's he's so obsessed with the features of the house 
And I think I would try a couple other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think Clark does a good job of, I guess we're kind of creeping into character territory here. Uh, she does a good job of making the other a foil where Piranesi is focused on these really raw kind of primitive concerns. And then the other just so casually has access to what is clearly, you know, like a laptop or a cell phone, you know, or a cell phone. And I thought it was and, a calculator or something at first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, has access to modern items like shoes and sleeping yeah. bags has, and has like no that. concerns about getting supplies. Yeah. Uh, and, and, all of his will is bent upon this arcane knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so we get that immediate jarring difference between the characters. And, uh, and he's clearly not very concerned with what Piranesi is doing in his free time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, all he cares about is the great and secret knowledge. Uh, all he cares about is gaining this power. Whereas Piranesi, like I think the first scene that struck me that was... Like he sees the other across from yeah, his he room, like waves. and he waves. Yes, such a vivid mental image. Oh my gosh! <laughs> right? Yeah, that's uh, one of those early scenes that I love. Like how I just fell in love with this book right away. And he's like, he's like, hey, you know, to the other, and he's he's like clearly so happy that he's yeah. not alone, and there's there's somebody else, and he wants to interact with him. And the other just is so bent on whatever he's doing that he doesn't even notice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the first time, you know, the great and secret knowledge comes up and, and we get kind of, you know, the list of the potential things it could do, you know, telekinesis, mind control, flight, invisibility, all these things, immortality. And Piranesi is uninterested in, those in any of them. <laughs> he, he has a little bit of a, a, rational breakdown of why you know yeah yeah of course he does he's got to tell himself yeah. like what he cares about is the house yeah. being the beloved child of the house yes and that makes piranesi i think a really likable character uh because it gives him an innocence like a childlike innocence so i also as we discover that he is from Earth and did have another life that he does not remember. I saw him designating himself as child of the house as like a a mental protection, like a coping hmm. mechanism. Sure, yeah, yeah, and that's how he he locks away Matthew Rose Sorensen. Yeah, it, well, it just protects himself from being desperate and alone. Okay. He kind of personifies the house a little bit. Yes, and he makes himself very happy about each of the things that he is doing to survive. Even though he's clearly uncomfortable, doesn't have good clothing. Yeah, he finds like, simple joys in things. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's so happy about like all of the things, like a bird flying in is just like makes the year. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I can't remember what there was one other year designation that we read and I can't remember uh, what he called couple, it. There were a couple other year designations. Um, oh man. Let me see if I can find any, any others just off the bat. Like, cause there were, there was a whole segment when he starts reviewing his, his notes. Because he was in there for six years. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the way he named them were, like, they were really fun. I gotta find, like, isn't one of the years just something like, uh, you know, the year the other gave me shoes or, you know, or the other gave me something? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I know he was very happy about the bowls the other gave him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, so I found some of them. Uh, the year of weeping and wailing. The what? year I what discovered. What year is that? Is that the first one? Um, yeah, it looks like it. Uh, <sighs> number one is labeled December 2011 to June 2012. Number two is labeled June 2012 to November 2012. Number three was originally labeled number November 2012, but this has been crossed out at some point and relabeled 30th day in the 12th month in the year of weeping and wailing to the fourth day of the seventh month in the year I discovered the coral halls. Uh, so yeah, there's the year I discovered the coral halls, the year I named the constellations, the year I counted and named the dead, the year that the ceilings in the 20th and 21st Northeastern halls collapsed. Oh, yeah. Um, the year I traveled to the 960th Western Hall. And then the year the Albatross came to the Southwestern Halls, which is when the, the story takes place. Yeah, it's really creative. There's, there's just a lot of creativity in the story that, again, brings that sense of wonder you know, into it. Uh, and again, I think it's a defense. Um, I actually, I did look up what the effects of solitary confinement are on, on people. Mm -hmm. And he definitely exhibits a lot of the symptoms. Let's see if I can read a little bit. Okay. Part of the part of the brain that plays a major role in memory has been shown to physically shrink after long periods without human interaction. Hmm. And since humans are naturally social beings, depriving people of the ability to socialize can cause social pain. Wow. Um, let's see. Social pain affects the brain in the same way as physical pain and can actually cause more suffering because of humans' ability to relive social pain. Hmm. Um, and... It goes like this article I'm reading goes on to talk about how when people go back to being able to socialize, they are too distressed by mm. the socializing and they end up shrinking away or, you know, reacting in a crate, what we would call a crazy way sure. because it's too much. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of saw that too with, with Piranesi. We see the effects on his memory. I kind of thought that was part of the world. I but, think it is part of the but world. But after seeing this, like, I'm not so sure. 
I I think it is part of the world. Everybody who goes there, like Ketterly won't stay there for longer than an hour, like a strict hour, because then his mind will start going. Um, I, I think it's more than just the natural phenomenon of being in solitude, that there is a mystical element involved. I mean, there's also a large percentage of people who kill themselves in solitary or yeah, oh, for sure. Like kill others. Mm-hmm. Which he like he could have gone after Ketterly. Yeah. Um let's see. Uh so what are the characters? I mean, do you do you have much to talk about with Lawrence? He's really only in the one scene and then we just hear about him. We learn about yeah. So we No, two scenes. Because we have the the journal entry about him interviewing Lawrence. He never no, interviewed Lawrence. No, he Lawrence. doesn't interview Lawrence. Yeah. The other the other author does. Yeah. Um he comes Angarad off, Scott, I think is the name. Yeah, he comes off as very arrogant. Yes. Yeah, he's extremely arrogant. He's like, I am the smartest person of my time. Like, yeah, he he is a, a braggart. Very proud. And he does cruel things. If we're to mm-hmm. believe everything, he does cruel things because he wants to show the power that he has over people. Mm-hmm. I saw him as like a 70s cultist. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and actually there were a couple horror movies that it completely reminded me of. Oh. Where like he starts doing these seances and everybody's like, well, this is a load of crock, but he's hit on something that is real. Yeah, yeah. And they end up having like something show up. Yeah, it's it is interesting that we we are told in this book that there are other worlds. It's not just Earth and the house. Uh, I th- I don't get the impression that is a story Clark is interested in telling. Uh, like I think in the hands of someone like Brandon Sanderson, that would be a you know a signpost for there will be future sequels there. You know, like I, I reserve the right to write more in this world. I don't think that's Uh, really her concern. Yeah. I don't think so either. Um, And I, again, I kind of hope she doesn't. I, I like that feeling of, you know, fruitless yearning for that knowledge that it is just beyond us that anything we can do, we cannot learn what this is. We cannot ever understand. Well, so Lawrence implies that he's been to all the others. I don't know about all the others. He's been to Multiple some. Multiple others, yeah. he, he implies. But we really see no effect that he's had on Earth. What do you mean? People are interested in his crazy stories and he's dismissed pretty often. Sure. But there's no like worldwide impact of like Oh yeah, of course other worlds are real. Everybody's right, like, right. oh well he's a They're kook skeptic. And yeah. yeah, they're skeptical. Yeah. hmm Um Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like I don't have a whole ton more to say 
like I, I, I really loved reading the book. I just loved the experience. What do you think she about had, the arc? She had great word choice throughout. I loved the, the way she described the halls and the statues. It was, it was just a very um, kind of refreshing approach to storytelling. Uh, so different you know, after I just spent several months reading nothing but Brandon Sanderson and James Islington, and this is wildly different mm-hmm. in style. Uh, but as those many people out there suggested, this is a style I really love reading. I mean, I would absolutely. I looked up her. Yeah, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We'll probably have to read that for the, for the show at some point. I mean, I, I automatically trusted her with the story. She's clearly a talented writer. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about Piranesi's character arc? No, I liked it. Uh, again, it, with that ending, um, having, having him end in this bittersweet situation was exactly what this book needed. I think it would have been unfulfilling, sappy almost, if he had gone back to Earth and happily reunited with his family and been Matthew Rose Sorensen again. He clearly couldn't. Yeah, like the story would have been worse for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, I like that there is a, a sense of newness to it. It's not just... Like, I'm glad he didn't stay in the house. I'm glad he didn't just say, no, I'm never going back to Earth. That would have been the easy way out for for Clark. Uh, instead, straddling those two options and choosing a different path for him altogether brought the story full circle, uh, brought me back to that sensation from the beginning of I will not know how this goes. I will not understand this experience. And like, that's, that's important. That's really important for this. Um, and so this is kind of one of my, uh, one of my big miscellaneous points. Uh, the reason the story deserves this type of feeling, this, this type of ending is, from its inspiration. Uh, so Piranesi, the name, is a reference to a real world person. Uh, a, an Italian artist named Giovanni Battista Piranesi. And he it was most famous for etchings that he did. Uh, a series of 16 etchings called Imaginary Prisons. And they are... Whoa. Images of insane, physically impossible labyrinths. Oh, that's really Here's cool. What I found. Oh, and and uh, Siri heard me talk about that and looked him up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and so clearly the inspiration is there for Clark that she heard about this guy and and his artwork. And she took that and twisted it, put her own spin on it, and told 
this story. But, you know, so right here I have, you know, some of the etchings pulled up. There, there are these, you know, it's easy to look at these and see what could have been halls and vestibules in the house with the, the wild staircases and vaults and statues. Yeah. And statues and everything. And, and again, they evoke that sense of just inscrutable unreality. And so having him end getting out of that labyrinth and stepping into a totally different sort of mental labyrinth. Like she nails it. The reason I think she landed it was the final scene in the book. Um, the really the final two uh, in my mind are all the tides and it began to snow. And we have these descriptions, you know, in my mind are all the tides, their seasons, their ebbs and their flows. In my mind are all the halls, the endless procession of them, the intricate pathways. So he has stepped out of the physical labyrinth, but now the labyrinth has inhabited his mind. And I love that. And then it, it began to snow. And that is when he goes out and he's looking at the people of London and seeing in them the statues from the oh, house. Oh, yes. That was a really beautiful, beautiful. scene. So good. Wow. Nailed the mood. Yeah. I and, forgot about yeah. that. And so it, what his arc is all about is navigating a labyrinth, but there is no exit. It's just a different labyrinth that he's now navigating. Yeah. The reason why I asked you about that is because it occurred to me now <laughs> that um, maybe there wasn't too much growth in his character, but yeah, with it but being a labyrinth and then another labyrinth. Yeah. It's not really about the growth. It's about the journey. It's about just his situation and and yeah tying back to that the the sense that you know what 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 was that quote um that i read earlier you know if if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled and that if ever we discover the knowledge then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery and and so that is the heart of the story. It can't, we can't treat it as a puzzle to suss out the story from it because by doing so, that would devalue the story. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, that doesn't take any value out of it for me if there were a thing, but, but I see how it's more complete. I yeah. just, I just love the stories, the story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I liked, I liked that Piranesi was still Piranesi. It wasn't like at the end we have a new character, you know, because yeah, he like returned to Matthew, but Sorensen. But it's not like, yeah, it's not like we have him being his Earth self exactly, again. Exactly, he is yeah. not. Yeah. In fact, he has no interest in. I don't mm -hmm. know if the mm -hmm. memories are accessible or not, but he has no interest in them. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, again, it would have been unsatisfying to just take the easy way out and say, oh, he's back on Earth. He's Matthew Rose Sorens again, happily ever after with his family. You know, like, and it, and that's... It, well, it would have defeated um, Raphael's whole journey to free him and find him if he had also just refused and been like, no, nah, the house is enough. Right, right, yeah. But also, like, at that moment when he decided to go... For me, it was like, okay, you you admit to yourself, you do still need people. You cannot do this by yourself. Yep. yep. Yeah. Even though you don't know those people, you don't know anybody but her. Mm-hmm. And you, you will likely forget her in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah, and so that, that final scene in the snow, that's... Yeah, I think that was probably my favorite scene in the book. Either that or the very opening where he's going down to watch the tides meet. And he almost gets swept away. Yeah, they're both both scenes have such a powerful sense of unreality that in a weird way just anchored me in the story. See, I also saw the 192nd room. Oh, such a good scene too. Yeah, with all at, at moonlight with the statues. Yes. Yeah. So he he initially goes in there and it's dark and he can't see anything because there is only one window and he, he starts like his, his mind starts imagining the things that could Mm -hmm. be in the dark, Mm -hmm. but he forces himself to go in anyways. And the moonlight starts to shine through and he realizes like what a joy it is to be in this room and how wonderful it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's this is definitely a book I'm going to reread. Yeah. Because I want that feeling. I mean, we finished it in one go. Yeah, I, I we we both read it in a day. Yeah. Um, and it is. And short, I beat you, know? you for once. Yeah, I got distracted for a while. Uh, I had other stuff to do. But but I still yeah I really enjoyed it and. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to read it again. I'll read her other stuff. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that brings us pretty much to the end of our conversation, unless you have anything else you want to bring up. So, okay, so we don't really talk about the Earth stuff. I know that's not your... You didn't enjoy it. I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. it it's more that it felt like a totally different story. I guess I get that. Yeah. And and when it came in, it really felt like it was intruding upon the story that I was falling in love with. It's also interesting that as he rereads these journal entries that clearly he does not remember, mm-hmm. he starts, he's like, well, I don't know that word. I don't know that word. I don't know what any of those words yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one makes sense and that one makes sense. So maybe this person I talked to is telling the truth, but eh. Mm-hmm. Like he he just he doesn't really care if he's forgotten something. Yeah. Okay, actually I do have one more point. Uh a, a specifically a writing style point, and that is the use of capitals, of capitonyms, words with capital letters. Uh how 
when it is Piranesi writing in his journals in the house, he capitalizes all sorts of words. He grants importance to things. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. But just, I open to a random page here. This realization, the realization of the insignificance of the knowledge, came to me in the form of a revelation. And in that sentence, insignificance, knowledge, and revelation all have capital letters. You know. He's clearly making notes for himself. Yeah, it's, there is a, yeah, like it's, it's a way that he is keeping himself sane insofar as he is sane, uh, by assigning importance and assigning meaning to things around himself that could otherwise just be looked at as a barren, desolate, you know, the way Ketterly looks at it. Yes. You know, where he remarks at one point how, like, Ketterly doesn't think of there being any life in the place, but he's like, look at all the birds and there are all the sea creatures downstairs and and there's life all around us. He he finds ways to assign meaning and value to the world around him. Yes, and he makes stories for his statues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, yeah. It's also interesting that he says, I know every single room, but I don't know where Ketterly sleeps. Yeah. I know every nook of every room. Like, that was the first hint to me that I was like, okay. Yeah, something's going on. Well, I honestly, from his point of view, I honestly saw the other Ketterly as a madman at first. He sounds and thinks crazy. To our main character. But our main character is accepting mm-hmm. anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's uh, that's everything I have to talk about with this book. Uh, final draft? No, okay. 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 Well, I'm, I'm just drinking water. Uh, yeah, I wasn't feeling super great yesterday. I feel like I was maybe dehydrated or something, so I've been drinking a lot of water today. But I mean, we, Lauren has something fun. We do live in a desert. We do. We do live in a desert. <laughs> All right. So uh, we went through the liquor store trying to figure out what themes to go with this book. Because there are a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... If I could do <laughs> some homebrews and name them perfectly, it wouldn't be as much fun. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'll admit. It's fun finding things. Um, but so what I picked was it's a cold IPA. That means they fermented it a little bit differently than... Is that like uh, chill at Weldworks? The, like basically they brew it like a Kolsch? They use some Kolsch yeast usually. Okay. And then they brew it at a colder temperature. Okay. Because the Kolsch yeast is happier there. Yeah. You yeah. know? Uh, lager temperature. Right. Um, but this one's a collaboration between two breweries, Payet Brewing Company and Rubens Brews. Mm-hmm. It's 6.5% ABV. Okay. Pretty standard. It's pretty West Coast. Yeah, let me smell this. Oh. Hmm. West Coast is not the first thing I think of. I get a lot of like tropical fruit out of this. That's because you're mango not mango and pineapple. You're not staring at the hop list. 
and almost like a oh what is that like a green olive like so just smelling this i'm yeah i get immediately pineapple and mango but the more i smell it i get a little bit of green olive i think that's one of the hops that you're hmm. interpreting that way yeah so i fascinating I'm, Part of it was I looked at the hop list before I even started drinking, but it is very more, very much more on the piney side. Was this like Cascade and Centennial or something like that? What do you know? Both Cascade and Centennial. (laughs) (laughs) Cascade, Centennial, Columbus, and Belma. I think you're smelling Belma. Oh, interesting. They're not used as often, but the only other beer that I know that has Belma smells like this. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's like piney and a little bitter, but then it ends smoothed out. Yeah, it, it may because it is it is pretty. It's a little hazy looking. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say yeah, it may taste different from what it smells. You may be getting more of the pine in the in the taste. Absolutely, but yeah. also I maybe I shouldn't have read it before I took a sip. <laughs> a little power of suggestion there. Always. Yeah. Always. But yeah. yeah, so this, I I thought of Piranesi and it's personal record. Definitely. Definitely. Like he says that he's journaling for the 16th person to arrive on the world. Whoever the 16th person is. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really for him. Yeah, it, it is. It absolutely is. So nice. cheers to his personal record. <laughs> Which we enjoyed reading greatly. We did. Yeah. So this has been episode 197 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, I think, is going to be a discussion of Andor season one. Uh, this isn't set in stone, but that's the plan. Uh, we're going to try to have Lauren back as well as John. Of course, we're talking Star Wars. Um, but there's an outside chance that because the next week is going to be very, very busy. Uh, I have a business trip and and there's some other things happening, but uh, if that doesn't happen, we'll figure something else out. Um, But hopefully it's Andor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As always, if you want to support the show, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inking out loud. I am, you know, I've been kind of struggling keeping up with the Patreon demands last few months after Rob left as everything has landed on my plate, but I'm finally starting to get a handle on things again. Uh, we're going to have another short episode, Patreon exclusive this month, talking about uh, the woman who is rapidly becoming one of my very favorite short story writers, uh, Alex E. Harrow. Uh, she just recently released a new short story called The Six Deaths of the Saint, and it's awesome. So we're going to be talking about that on Patreon. If you want to hear what we have to say there consider supporting us but i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my wonderful wife lauren cheers guys thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time